What's up, everybody? Yeah, good to see you. Thank you. Good to see you. Um, 7 p.m. This is, I was actually thinking about this. This is the last uh, official gathering of our church before the end of the year. We're doing the Christmas Eve thing, but this is the last like regular schedule thing that we're doing, so we made it. Uh, and I feel like it's only appropriate to end it with the p.m. because uh, the p.m. is where we started. We only did the p.m. for our first four years, and now uh, we get to conclude with you guys, and I'm really excited. Um, my name's Brian, one of the pastors here at the Summit, and uh, there's two things I want to do. Uh, so the first thing is, uh, our church, we did our first ever mission trip to London a couple weeks ago, and I wanted to kind of let you guys know what went on with that and kind of catch you up on that before we get into the new year. Uh, the second thing that I really wanted uh, to do is teach the Bible. So that's what we're going to do. Does that sound good? Um, all right, so let me catch you up on London. So about 18 months ago, um, as our church kind of came increasingly to a place of stability, we felt the responsibility to be the type of community that doesn't just care about what's going on here on, at Denver, but really a healthy church is a global church. And as a consequence, we decided to adopt two particular regions of the world uh, that we would focus sort of our global missions efforts. The first was Guatemala City. We took our first ever mission trip there six months ago and helped a church start another church in Guatemala City, which is the largest city in Central America. The other city that we adopted was London. And we didn't just adopt that city, but we adopted a, an indigenous church plant in, there, uh, in that city uh, called Trinity West Church. It's in West Urban uh, London. It's in the Shepherd's Bush neighborhood, uh, and they're a church of about uh, four years old or so. Now, I feel like there's a lot that I could say about this, but what I do, because we're limited with time, uh, is I want to tell you about kind of maybe just the nature of our relationship. I think particularly now, I've I'm, I'm been back for a week. I'm less jet-lagged. Now that you, once you get on the other side of 30, like, that stuff just affects you longer, so... Uh, sorry for all of you who are close to that uh, mile marker in your life. It's very sad. Um, but now I'm, I'm getting like a little bit more clear-headed, and uh, I can kind of see clearly what I feel like the nature of our relationship is. And I feel like kind of the best way to reflect it is almost like the, uh, the relationship between Paul and Barnabas that you read about in the book of Acts. Uh, and what, what I kind of feel like is that almost like Trinity West is like Paul to us. We are like Barnabas to them. Now, the reason I feel like uh, Trinity West is like Paul to us um, if you read the book of Acts, Paul had this sort of um, unfiltered uh, passion for the truth of who God is. A lot of times that would get him in trouble, but he would tell you kind of exactly what was right and exactly what was true, and it was absolutely ne necessary for the gospel to advance uh, in really, really difficult areas. And I feel like it was so good for us as a church to be exposed to a community of people in a really difficult, really expensive, uh, I just think a harder area than even our area, which I think Denver is one of the hardest places in the world to help start uh, a new church, uh, and just sort of their unwavering commitment to the truth. And not just that, but sort of this collective awareness of the privilege of what it means to belong to the community and the church of God. Um, maybe just to make this a little bit more practical, I'll just give you an example. Um, a couple weeks ago, uh, I was at their service, so Sunday morning, two weeks ago in London, I was at their service, and uh, after they got done, Reuben, one of the pastors, uh, asked me, what did you think? And I told him, I was like, well, before I tell you what I think about the service, let me tell you what struck me the most from the entire morning was how on time everybody was. Like, <laughs> like people were crazy punctual. Like, people, you know, the service started at 10, and at 9.55, everybody is in their seat, ready to go. Now, let me say this, because like 98% of you are late every single week, and this is not my like passive-aggressive passive aggressive, like uh, uh, rebuke of you with your punctuality. That's not the point of the story, okay? So just 
ease up a little bit, come back, okay? I'm not going after you individually. So I, I make this comment to Ruben, and he sort of looks at me, and he pauses, and he's like, yeah, of course they're on time. Like, this is the most significant hour and a half time slot out of every person's week. It's more important than the jobs that they're on time for. It's more important than the dates they would never be late for whatsoever. This is like the opportunity, the privilege to gather with the people of God is sort of the pinnacle, the highlight of these people's weeks. Uh, and I was just really struck by that because I was like, man, I don't know if we can talk like that uh, in Denver. You know, I mean, it's just one of the reasons you travel is so you can get sort of a juxtaposition between other cultures and your own and even see a lot of your own culture's blind spots. You know, and in Denver, I think a lot of times the church and even going to a church gathering a lot of times, it's sort of like a, an option on an endless buffet line of uh, potentialities of what you want to do over the weekend. And a lot of times it's like, as long as kind of something better didn't pop up before Sunday evening, I think I'll go. And even in our culture, there's sort of this general posture of skepticism and cynicism and apathy towards the church and what it is that it's doing. Um, it's always hard for me, even as a leader, to know to what degree do we engage that and what degree do we challenge that and push against that. And it was kind of like, it was like cold water for like a thirsty soul as a leader just to be exposed to a community of people that, I don't know, like really saw the gathering, really saw being part of this community uh, as a privilege. And it really just struck me even because a lot of times people will talk about what the church is doing in Europe, particularly Western Europe, and they'll say, oh, the church is dead in Western Europe. And I would just say like, that's not right. <laughs> like, that's not true. Like, I was just in Western Europe, and the church is alive and well. The church has been refined in Western Europe. The church is being reborn in Western Europe. Weird cultural, governmental religion is dead in Western Europe, thanks be to God. Uh, but, like, there is a reawakening of a gospel people and a gospel movement in really difficult areas uh, like London. And I, what they're doing, like, really challenged me. Uh, to like for us as a people to be more serious about what we're doing here in the city as well. Um, on the flip side, I feel like we're like Barnabas to them. Because if you read Acts, um, Barnabas, his name actually meant son of encouragement. And what he would do, he was much more anonymous than Paul in the book of Acts. And he sort of pops up at really unique times to kind of offer uh, unique help uh, for the mission of the church to advance. So if somebody was discouraged, he would pop in and he would encourage them. If somebody made a serious mistake, for example, if there's a story in Acts of a guy named Mark who makes a huge, huge mistake and everybody kind of assumes he's disqualified and he's out for good. And Barnabas comes and kind of takes him under his wing and loves him back to health and being used. When there are financial challenges, he pops up and he kind of helps the church uh, achieve financial health as well. And I really felt like that was kind of our job, to be sort of anonymous, behind the scenes, ask this church what do they need, and then have us kind of meet and help with those practical ways that we can encourage them and, and empower them really to continue doing what it is that uh, they're doing. I understand like all of that, you know, you're saying like, oh, we're going to London to build a relationship and to encourage. You're like, yeah, right. Like, what is that really? And even like, I think a lot of us, when we think about mission stuff, uh, think about like, well, what did you build? In fact, uh, that was actually the question I got most frequently asked over the past week. People would be like, hey, so like, like, what building did you build for that church? And it's like, one, you don't want me building anything. Uh, two, like, London is pretty well developed. There's not, like, land to, like, build things on. In fact, the cost of living there, the cost of construction there is exponentially higher than what it is here in Denver as well. But what we did do is we went in and we saw needs. We saw needs like, um, you know, some of the families there could be loved tangibly by having Levi, uh, a professional photographer at our church, and he took uh, these photos as well, doing free family photos for them. Uh, we saw opportunities like, you know, the pastor's wives uh, were just 
I don't know, they were just tired from like watching their kids all the time. And so we had people from our team help watch their kids so they could have some element of a uh, adult conversation as well. Uh, we found ways just to practically encourage. Like I went to a Lessons in Carol service and uh, after it got done, I mean, it was beautiful. It was stunning. It was really well done. It was at this local university. And after it was done, I made a point of finding the person who organized it to go encourage them because I'd heard that British culture was very pessimistic and very discouraging. I was like, I'm going to go encourage that guy. I know I might come off as like the overly optimistic American, but I'm going to go love this guy. And so I found him and uh, I told him, I said, you did a great job and uh, you should be really encouraged. And this is, this is really well done. I've never seen anything like this before. And this guy looks at me for like seven seconds and says nothing. Like we're just sort of standing there in, in the forum into this beautiful chapel and we're just like looking in each other's eyes and I'm like, is this a cultural thing? What's going on here? And finally, he breaks the silence and he's like, oh, you're being serious. Like you actually thought this was good? I thought you were being sarcastic. And I'm like, what is wrong with you people? Like, who is, like what sick brain individual would like sarcastically be like, yeah, that was great, great job. You know, like I'm Brian, by the way. Like who, like what in the world is going on? But it was like, okay, we can encourage and love you guys. And even I felt like one of the biggest highlights of the trip was one of the members of Trinity West Church saying to one of the members that we brought uh, from the summit, you know, we've, we've had a lot of Americans sort of cycle through here to maybe see what it is that we're doing or do a quick trip to, to maybe encourage us. But you guys are the first that really seem to care about us and love us and desire to know us and believe in what it is that we're doing here. Uh, and so that was just so encouraging to me even to hear on the other side of it to say, okay, this really was worth it. And, you know, it's just like, I, I kind of know from the other side of it, when you're in a really difficult area and you're trying to start something new and it's against all odds uh, and you're just in the grind of things, it's just easy to believe that God's not in this thing and you're terrible and all your experiences are mistakes and people are only discouraged and frustrated with you. And when somebody from the outside comes and is like, hey, like God is at work here, it is like blowing wind into uh, sails just to kind of encourage you and empower you to keep going. And I feel like we were able to do that for them uh, as many have been able to do that for us here uh, in Denver as well. So that's my five minute-ish uh, update uh, of what we did. And so that's brings a conclusion to mini-sermon of the night number one, and now I'm going to teach the Bible. Does that sound good? Well, we now have another plan, so that's what we're going to do. Um, so the other magical thing about London, there's a lot of magical things, and all I'm going to do is tell stories about London for the next six weeks. So I'm not even sorry. I'm just sort of preparing you that that's what every story is going to be. Uh, but the other magical thing about London is they love Christmas. Uh, if you ever go to London in December, you will not see the sun. Uh, but you will see the most magical expressions of Christmas that are out there. And so uh, I remember uh, us and our group, we took a day and we went down to an area of the city called Oxford Circus. It's not a real circus. There's no elephants. If you ask for that, you'll definitely come off as a tourist. Uh, it's a circular area where there is kind of like the ultimate outdoor shopping mall. And it was just beautiful. You've got these lights strung up and you've got these lit up Santa Clauses and reindeer. And there was these giant, beautiful red banners saying these very, very inspirational phrases like hope and love and peace and kindness and uh, peace on earth and love your fellow man and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, it was interesting even seeing that and then coming back and particularly like I got back and I was super late in terms of doing any Christmas shopping whatsoever. So I've been at like every mall that Denver has. It's amazing to me that in a secular city like London and a secular city like Denver as well, 
we do this, uh, kind of in spite of our lack of religious belief. We put up very religious words, very inspirational words. We kind of get caught up into the spirit of the day, and we say, you know, this is kind of the time of year where you're supposed to be more loving, more kind, more patient, more peaceful, more loving of another than ever before. Now, here's the really kind of striking thing. I was walking through Oxford Circus, and I was thinking about this. As these banners are everywhere, they're at Oxford Circus, they're at Cherry Creek Mall, but nobody, like nobody anywhere, at least that I know of, actually answers the question of like, how do you go about actually doing those things? Isn't that like an interesting question maybe to at least deal with? We kind of assume like, oh, I'll just put up these words to say, love your fellow man, and people will just kind of more naturally desire to love their fellow man. And yeah, like, let's just think about this critically for a second. You know, Black Friday, for example, in the U.S. is when we typically start putting up the Christmas banners like that in shopping malls. And on Black Friday this past year, in the shadow of banners that said, love your fellow man or love your neighbor, there was one neighbor assaulting another neighbor over a slightly reduced Xbox One to make their child's Christmas dreams come true. Like, isn't that just a little bit interesting to think about, that we need more than just sort of words to inspire us to hopefully like be better people, but we need some sort of explanation of how is it that we go about doing it. In fact, I was thinking about it from maybe another angle. Um, I feel like maybe my goal as we get started here, is for you to feel some element of the bankruptcy of the cultural sentimentality that we all kind of put out there when Christmas comes out. And even like the banners like that, to be like, well, without any sort of motivation of how, without particularly from this story that gives kind of the heart of the Christmas story that propels our hearts to actually be able to do this, um, I almost think about those banners you see at shopping malls almost in the same way as you see like motivational work posters um, like this. Can I show you this? Um, Yeah, so... Some of you work in offices with these. Uh, and I guess, like, you know, they're less of a cultural phenomenon now as they were 10 years ago. But I guess sort of the, the psychology behind this is that you're sitting at your cubicle, um, and despite the fact that it's an inhumane amount of space for a human being to spend, you know, eight hours of their day, in spite of the fact that, you know, Janice in accounting is the worst, uh, in spite of the fact that because of Janice in accounting, you are not going to get to leave at 5. You're actually going to have to leave around 7.30 or 8 o'clock because of her you know, mistakes. It's almost like you're supposed to sort of peer over the edge of your cubicle, look at that, and see a group of people holding hands and skydiving and think to yourself, you know what? This isn't that bad. Teamwork does make the dream work. Janice in accounting isn't that bad. We can actually work this out. Now, have any of you had that experience at work where you've seen one of these posters and thought to yourself, you know what? I want to be a better team member. I, I'm just inspired by this picture of people skydiving. You're probably like, no, like, why am I not skydiving right now? Like, why am I, why am I at work? Okay, so there's some element of bankruptcy, and it, there's just a lack of power behind us just putting out motivational phrases out there. That's what we try to do at Christmas. What we need is a glimpse, a window into how do we actually live out the qualities we collectively as a culture say are so significant to embody at Christmas time. And it's this story uh, of this interaction between Elizabeth and Mary, and particularly the example of Elizabeth, who often gets like skipped over in all of this uh, because she kind of gets cast in Mary's shadow, where we really get a window into that question of like, how do we go about doing this as well? So we're going to walk through the story. I'm really excited to do this with you, and uh, let's look at uh, verse 39. Now, uh, what you've seen uh, over the last couple of weeks as we walk through this is there's been two stories, very similar, but there's unique differences of two miraculous conceptions. You have Elizabeth, 
who miraculously conceives with her husband, Zechariah, and she is carrying a baby boy named John. And then you have uh, Mary last week, who miraculously conceives by the power of the Holy Spirit, and she is uh, pregnant with a boy named Jesus. And what we see is these two stories that we've seen in Luke chapter 1 are now going to intersect with one another as Mary and Elizabeth come to greet one another. They're actually cousins, uh, and so they're part of the same family. Now look at verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Now, this is really significant. What we saw last week is that Mary uh, is told by the angel, not only will she miraculously conceive, but her cousin is miraculously conceived as well. And Mary, so overjoyed by the news that her cousin Elizabeth is pregnant, particularly, you know, we've seen that it's been very difficult for her to get pregnant. She's desired to get pregnant. She's not been able to get pregnant. She's now miraculously conceived. Mary is so overjoyed by this. She takes the journey south to go and greet her cousin and to celebrate alongside her. And what we know is that the journey there, depending on kind of the uh, path that she took, would have been somewhere around 80 to 100 miles to get down there. Now, um, you know, if you've ever been pregnant or know somebody who's pregnant, you know that one of the things that they, very rightfully so, okay, I'm going to try to tread lightly here, but very rightfully so, is like somebody who is very pregnant does not want to take a significantly long road trip. In fact, like a lot of times pregnant women do not even want to drive to like the Ikea in Centennial. And so here's Mary, like very pregnant, now making a trip 80 to 100 miles south to go greet her cousin, not just pregnant, but probably traveling on a donkey to get down there. Very difficult a uh, very dangerous journey as well. And it says something of her love uh, for this cousin of hers as well. So she finally gets down there. She greets Elizabeth in verse 41. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her in Elizabeth's womb. So, you know, sometimes babies kick, uh, but this is not like a kick. Like uh, Elizabeth and Mary greet. The baby in Elizabeth's womb, John, hears the greeting of Mary and the baby John is so overwhelmed by this, he doesn't just kick, he does like a, a somersault. He, he just, it's like something that never really had happened uh, before. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, that's really significant as well, because a lot of times people think that kind of the Holy Spirit, he doesn't make his debut until after Jesus resurrects and in the book of Acts or something like that. No, like the Holy Spirit, he is guiding the entire of the story. He's fully God. He's always existed. He is there even to the creation. And he is the power of creation as well. Look at this. Elizabeth filled with the Holy Spirit, uh, was filled with the Holy Spirit, verse 42, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Which really at that point, nothing really jumps off as particularly unique or uh, unusual or significant. It just sort of comes off as almost this, you know, if somebody told you that they're pregnant, you're like, oh, I'm so happy for you. Like that's kind of like what this comes off of. But then Elizabeth keeps talking, and what she says in the following verses is what makes this kind of a, a very unusual uh, celebration of Mary's pregnancy. But not only that, but a glimpse into how Elizabeth embodies the qualities of Christmas that we so desire to embody in our own lives as well. So look at this. It's unusual kind of what she responds with, and it's so beautiful for two reasons. The first is, and we're going to do verse 44 first, and we'll jump back to verse 43. But the first what we see in verse 44 is we see this remarkable remarkable deferral, a remarkable deferral. Now look at this verse 44. She says, for behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Now what's significant is she's not just saying, oh, you know, it's, he kicked <laughs> or even he leapt. It's, it's more than that. It's something far more significant is being implied here where really Elizabeth is demonstrating um, 
not just a deferral, not just humility, but really an almost offensive level of love for her cousin. Because what she's saying here in this moment is like, what's happening here is the baby that you're carrying is more significant than the baby that I'm carrying, which I don't think you would ever hear two pregnant women have that conversation ever. Like, it's, again, like, I'm not trying to say this is normative, and if you get pregnant, go say that to somebody else, because we're talking about the baby Jesus here, and you're not going to interact with somebody who's carrying the baby Jesus, okay? But it's just, like, the degree of humility, particularly, like, when you kind of think about this, like, these are normal people who are interacting with one another, and particularly parents a lot of times have weird competitive things going on. They compete about their kids. They compete about their pregnancies. I know it's weird, but parents love to do that, and particularly within families as well. Like, isn't that weird? Like, some of you are like, oh, your cousin Janice is, I don't know why, if any of you are named Janice, I have nothing against that. It's just like, I just don't know anybody named Janice. But like, oh, your cousin Janice is pregnant. And you're like, oh, I'm so thrilled for her. And then you got to do that thing, right? Where you're like, see her at Christmas and be like, Janice, I'm so happy for you. And then she won't talk about pregnancy and breastfeeding. And you're like, if you talk about lactation one more time, I'm out of here. I'm going back to Denver where it's safe and people don't talk about this stuff all the time. And it's like, here is... Elizabeth greeting her cousin and is like genuinely, authentically uh, excited for her. And not just excited, but it goes to this almost offensive level of humility to say like your child, Mary, is more significant than my child. That's why my child leapt in the womb in response to just even being in the presence of your child. Again, it's just like, I feel like where this floors us is when we think about, let me just unpack this a little bit because I just, I was struck by this, you know, I was at Cherry Creek Mall because my daughter loves to go play at the, uh, the play area in the middle of Cherry Creek Mall, um, which is like a disease pit, in my opinion. Like, like, if you get away from there without a major, like the flu, like, you have proof that God exists and he is protecting you sovereignly because that's the only explanation of getting away from there uh, without any sort of consequences whatsoever. But I go to Cherry Creek Mall in order to do sermon research as well. And so I'm sitting there and she's like sliding on the dinosaurs and all this sort of stuff. And, you know, I'm just trying to make sure that she stays alive. But I'm also overhearing these parents talk to one another. And, uh, you know, it's just so interesting listening to these parents talk to one another. And again, they're, they're so strikingly competitive with one another, particularly when you hear parents talk about like milestones that their kids hit as well, where, you know, they'll kind of casually sidle up to one another and it's like, uh, you know, is that your son over there? Oh, yeah, yeah, like that's Mason over there. Uh, oh, you know, Mason actually just started walking. He started walking through the year. He's, he's very, very advanced. And then you can hear the other mom kind of like, you know, impatiently listen to the rest of the story so she can be like, oh, well, that's Braxton over there. Uh, that's my son. He actually started walking at six months. You know, it's great that Mason is so uh, advanced, but, you know, Braxton uh, has actually started walking uh, much earlier. And then you hear another mom overhearing all this, and then she comes even closer, and she's like, well, that's little Sally over there, and it's great that your boys are so advanced, but, you know, girls are actually much more advanced than boys. And Sally actually came out of the womb walking. It was more like a dance. It was sort of like a river dance. It was very professional, very well done, kind of made me laugh, kind of made me cry. You know, but it's great that your kids are a little delayed, but it's just weird. We're like this all the time. You know, again, I know a ton of you aren't parents, but it's just weird the degree that parents place. Like, I'm not that surprised now that, like, dads freak out at their 10-year-old's t-ball games. I'm not. Like, and I'm just sort of trying to already check myself to not be that type of uh, adult uh, and parent one day in the future. We place inordinate amounts of expectation on the performance of our children, and that's what it makes it so 
strikingly humble for Elizabeth to look at her cousin and be like, I am so happy for you. I'm so thrilled for you. I defer to you. The significance of your child, it's just, it really is the type of quality that we put banners up around at Christmas in our shopping malls. Now, the question then again is, how does she go about doing this? And we see this is after this remarkable deferral from uh, Elizabeth is a remarkable declaration. Uh, Look at this in verse 43. She says, and why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Now, this is very bizarre because she says, the mother of my Lord. Do you understand what she's communicating there in that moment? She's, she's kind of telling uh, Mary her perception of this pregnancy. Now, what's really interesting, um, well, let me, let me just kind of make you see clearly what they say in verse 43. When, when Elizabeth's saying, the mother of my Lord, you know what she's saying? Like, the child that you're carrying is God. Now, a lot of times people say a lot of different things to you when you're pregnant. In fact, this is kind of our announcement of this, but my wife is pregnant. Um, yeah, thanks. We're really excited for that. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, so my wife is pregnant. And, uh, you know, it's interesting when you tell people that you're pregnant, um, you get a lot of different reactions. Uh, most people say really kind things. Some people say incredibly offensive things. And then, you know what I haven't heard yet, though, uh, because we've kind of experienced every end of that spectrum. Uh, I still have not had anybody say to me, your child is God. Uh, that would be very weird, and I'm not expecting that. And if you say that to me, you have serious theological problems and uh, mistakes as well. So we've, we've never experienced that whatsoever. This, again, uh, if you ever hear two pregnant women talking to one another, you've probably never heard one say to the other, oh yeah, your child is God. That would be a weird thing to overhear. But that's what Elizabeth is saying to Mary. And not only that, but we're starting to see then as a glimpse into the how of how she can embody this remarkable humility. What we're seeing is almost like a chain reaction is going off where she correctly sees who it is that God is and the work that he's come to do. And as a consequence, of her rightly seeing God as a consequence of sort of the vertical relationship between her and God being rightly restored. She as a result and as a consequence is able to relate rightly horizontally to the people around her as well. It's like, and let me just read this because I want to be like specific in the language. It's kind of tricky, but here's like, it's like, okay. Um, God has revealed the truth of who he is to her. She has received that truth and pressed it deep into her heart by the power of the Holy Spirit in verse 41. And as a consequence, she begins to manifest these fruits of the Spirit because she has seen and believed. All of which she emphasizes and says, this is what's going on in verse 45 when she says, and blessed is she who believes that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So it's like we're getting a glimpse into here in this moment is because she sort of sees God for who he really is, because she sees the king has returned and is coming to put the world back together again. We're getting a glimpse of the fact that he's putting the world back together again in the smallest sort of nook and cranny of culture that is in the way that one cousin would relate to another cousin's simple announcement of a pregnancy. Again, where this kind of theme starts to like maybe land is like, this is actually a very consistent theme that we produce in our media and in stories and any great, I don't know, uh, particularly if there's any great story of like kings and queens and the king has been displaced and we need the king to come back. I mean, you see this in the Chronicles of Narnia, you see this in Lord of the Rings, you see this in Frozen, you see this in Lion King. Like, let's just use Lion King as an example because that's the movie that I've watched uh, most recently, uh, not just by myself, but with my, my daughter. And uh, even though if you watch it by yourself, no judgment, it's a great film. And, uh, you know, if you've watched that movie, what's really interesting is kind of when the, the rightful king is displaced, right? Like when uh, Mufasa is killed, 
Uh, we, were, we were watching this with my two-year-old. We fast-forwarded through that part. So don't tell her that. She doesn't know that Mufasa died. She thinks he just disappeared. And she'll find out when she's seven that, yeah, he, he got killed by antelope or whatever it was. Um, but, when, but when Mufasa, uh, was I wrong about that? I feel like this is the most discussion we've had here. Uh, like, what was it? Just so that all of you can be okay. Wildebees, sorry. Okay. Um, is everybody okay now? Yeah? Okay. Okay. It's like, you guys care more about the precision of the Lion King. Than, it's like, I could say something heretical and you'd be like, man, it's not that big of a deal. But it's like the Lion King, it's like, oh, actually, it's a wildebeest. Uh, so, <laughs> no, like you guys are thinking, I appreciate that. Um, but, you, but the point of this is, you know, Mufasa is killed and the wrong, per, you know, Scar takes the throne. And what's really interesting is, like, what do you see in that film? You don't just see, like, oh, well, like, the political uh, uh, situation is not what it should be. But no, like, the wrong person being on the throne has cosmic implications, doesn't it? You know, like, nature itself starts to crumble. People aren't able to eat in the way that they're supposed to eat. Relationships start to crumble and fall apart as well. And then once Simba comes back and takes his rightful place on the throne, it's not just like, oh, well, the right person is in power, and now there's beautiful economic implications of this. No, it's like the nature starts to blossom again. People begin to eat in the way they're supposed to eat. Relationships, and, you know, Elton John is singing Circle of Life, and everything is put back together in the way that it was meant to be. That is merely a shadow of the real story of the gospel and the work that Jesus came to do. And what we're seeing is a glimpse of the work that he came to do here, where he has come as the rightful king to put the world back together in the way he was supposed to be. And we're getting a glimpse of this in the life of Elizabeth, who sees the king has returned and it changes her horizontal relationships again in something that's seemingly trivial but astoundingly significant in the way that one cousin relates to another cousin's announcement of birth. In fact, C.S. Lewis, he kind of alluded to this in The Meaning of Christmas. Here's what he said. He said, the enemy-occupied territory, that is what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say landed in disguise and is calling us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. And again, like just so you know, like we're not just kind of pulling this out of nowhere. Luke earlier in chapter one has said himself, like this is the type of work that Jesus came to do, not only to restore a right right relationship between people and God. And I'm not saying not only because it's not that big of a deal. It's a huge deal. It's like the best news ever. That's why the word gospel means good news and it's very essence and definition, but it doesn't stop there. But that vertically restored relationship has horizontal implications. And it's why, for example, when Luke anticipates the work of Jesus, he says something like in 117, when he says that the work of Jesus comes and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Now, somebody else made an observation about this. This is not original to me. One of our members, Ruth Dameron, made this observation to me. uh, And she was like, isn't that really striking? And it made me think of a conversation I had with another one of our members who grew up uh, on the international mission field. And she grew up in an area of the world that was totally kind of unreached and unengaged with the gospel. And I'll never forget this. We were having dinner, and she said to me one time, she said, the way that my family could tell whether or not the gospel had broken into a particular tribe was by looking at the way that the men treated their families. Isn't that interesting? She was like, we didn't have to know what they believed. They didn't have to, it's like, all we would do is we would hop from tribe to tribe. And if we came to a tribe and we saw the man as highly hierarchical, highly chauvinistic, highly exploitative of women, highly abusive of women, had a bunch of mistresses, abandoned his family, we knew the gospel hadn't arrived there yet. But every so often we would come on a tribe and we would see that like, there was a man loving only one woman. There was a husband that had turned away from his mistresses and returned to his wife. 
There was a man that was actually serving around the home. There was a man actually playing for his children and caring for his children and interacting with his children. Like before we even met that man, we knew that he was a follower of Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? Like that is Luke 1 actually coming to life where the work of Jesus comes and the king returns and he not only restores us back to God. Again, not only is not a, saying it's not a big deal, it's a huge deal, but it spills into the entirety of culture into every nook and cranny, like the way the man interacts with a woman, the way a man interacts with his children, the way a man interacts with broader culture as a whole. And as a consequence, the entirety of the cosmos is meant to be transformed by the coming work of Jesus. And Elizabeth is getting that. She's getting that. She's understanding that. And she's showing that in her life as well. Now, why in the world does this matter for our lives? Like, what in the world do we do with this in this particular uh, week? Well, here's the thing. I think a lot about this, right? Because what we're seeing is basically Elizabeth is a model of how do we treat other people rightly because we understand kind of the way that God has treated us in the gospel. And I was thinking a lot about this for, for many of you because, um, I don't know, it's the week of Christmas, this is our last gathering before Christmas. You know, on the Christmas Eve thing, that'll be a little bit different. And it's like, everybody talks about how this is the most magical time of the year and the most wonderful time of the year. And I'm not at the opposite extreme where I'm like Scrooge and I'm about to like crap on all those dreams. But I just like, I just think if we're honest, I just think if we're vulnerable for a lot of us, this is the most trying and difficult week relationally by far. Um, a lot of you will be going back home in the next couple of weeks or next, next couple of days, uh, and even next couple of weeks as well, because you don't want to pay Christmas uh, rates for flights. Um, and, you know, like going back to see your family, particularly when you've moved away from your family, can be very, very difficult relationally. And not only that, but you get back, and the very first question from your grandma is like, why are you coming home alone? Like, why aren't you married? Why don't you have children? Um, which particularly, like, if you want to be married and you're not married, or if you want to have children and you're not able to have children, um, you know, that's really painful. That's really hurtful. And it's easy for you within about five minutes of you getting back to where you grew up to being like, well, I think, can, I, can one of you just, you know, I'll just call an Uber. We'll just go back and I'll go back home. Um, a lot of you will have family actually visiting with you because Denver is kind of the one city in the world that I feel like everybody actually does come and visit when they say, oh yeah, I'll come see you sometime. Uh, in Denver, they actually come and see you. Uh, everywhere else, they don't go. But like Denver, they're like, yeah, I could go and see them, but I really can leave my stuff in their place so I can go skiing. And, uh, you know, it's like you have like a, you know, almost like a portable hotel for, for people to be able to live out their dreams on the mountains. And man, that stuff is just difficult. Or I just even think really practically, for those of you who really do love Christmas, um, which I'm somebody who actually really does love Christmas as well, is it's very easy to put in so much effort and so much time and like have such unrealistically high expectations to be astoundingly disappointed and then blow up the entirety of the event for everybody because you're so frustrated and disappointed about how your expectations weren't met. And so I just think that, um, again, my job is to kind of not give you inspirational, vague spiritual talks, but to talk to you about the very realities of your life. And I just think if we're honest, and this is just sort of cold, hard sociology and statistics, um, once you cut through the sentimental kind of holiday bullcrap. Is it okay for me to say that? Um, your silence is really encouraging me. Um, <laughs> I'm going to say it anyways. I just think this is a really hard week for a lot of us. Um, and so it's with that in mind where I really want to challenge you, not just with the example of Elizabeth, but really like 
the God who empowered Elizabeth to act in such a countercultural way. And, and just in the same way, Elizabeth pressed the truths of the gospel deep down in her heart, and it changed the way that she would interact with, you know, her cousin, for example. Uh, for some of you, very simply, like, you would be able to relate to a cousin who's very difficult, like, on you in the exact same way. You know, it's like, for some of you, your expectations aren't going to be met. And what I hope, instead of you blowing up the entirety of the holiday, is you can sort of take a step back and reinterpret that situation through the lens of the gospel to say, okay, before I kind of blow this thing whole thing up, um, you know, how is it that God's treated me? Um, you know, I know these people haven't exactly responded in the way that I wanted to, them to in response to my hard work. Wait, wait a second, before I get sort of self-entitled and just kind of disappear and get really, really frustrated and get very, very angry, like maybe I should just ask the question, like, and have I always perfectly appreciated every good gift that God has put in my life as well? You know, like, I would just say if you're honest about that question, you would just have to say, no, I haven't. <laughs> you know, like God gave you the gift of life. I understand you get frustrated because people don't appreciate like the rapping job that you did. I'm sure it was beautiful. I'm sure it was wonderful. I can't rap. But there's some humility stirred within us when we begin to interpret that situation through the lens of the gospel that says, man, like God has been so long-suffering, so patient, so kind. He has endured alongside me even though I have not fully appreciated him ever on a daily basis and he doesn't abandon me or forsake me. Actually, when I study the story of Jesus, he remains more resolved than ever to be committed to me and to actually die for me on a cross. And that produces within you then an element of patience and kindness that produces kind of a healthy family environment when people don't appreciate you very well uh, as well. Uh, you know, I think about, particularly in the PM, like this is where you have the least amount of families. And as a consequence, um, you know, it's like uh, 21st century America is not... Uh, the same as first century uh, Jerusalem in terms of, you know, maybe their uh, idolatry of family. But I still think this is a considerably hard culture uh, not to be married in, uh, particularly at the holidays. And it's hard. It's hard, like, the way that everything is kind of built around family and the expectations that you'll have somebody to come with. And again, this is like you see family and they just sort of have no awareness of I don't know, like how hard it is to be in a city like this and to meet a guy who authentically loves Jesus and the hard work you're making, for example, ladies particularly, like the ladies in here who are like not willing to kind of compromise for a man who will not treat you or lead you well in Christ. Like that's not on grandma's radar whatsoever. And yeah, she'll ask you about it anyways. And like, it's painful, it's hard, it's difficult. And I'm just like, and what I'm praying for you is that this Christmas season, like what you're able to do is take that question and not fire back and not be impatient and to like long suffer and to endure, but even to like re-identify with Jesus who is like not this, only this perfect savior, but man, like in a culture that truly did idolize marriage, even in a way that we don't understand today. And he was single his entire life. Like he, he celebrated major national holidays in a lot of ways alone his entire life. And there's difficulties with that. There's pains with that. There's struggles with that. And you know what? I don't perfectly understand, but I don't have to perfectly understand because I can point you to Jesus who perfectly understands and loves you and cares for you and identifies with you as you take on those hardships and those challenges as well. The goal in all of this is for you, like Elizabeth, to reinterpret the entirety of your life through the lens of the gospel. And as a consequence, you are able to spill the goodness of God's grace into every nook and cranny of culture, like going back home and having family say really stupid stuff to you. <laughs> 
That's what I'm hoping for you. That's what I'm praying for you. And as a consequence, like what I really hope is in a really significant, meaningful way, this truly is the best Christmas ever. And really the glory of God shines through uh, our very countercultural and radical gospel-shaped lives. All right? We love you. Merry Christmas. Happy end of the year. Other inspirational phrases. That's all I have to say to you. All right, let's pray. God, we thank you so much for who it is that you are. And uh, yeah, I thank you for this community of people. And um, I really do pray for them as a lot of them, I know particularly of this group, uh, will scatter all over the country and even really all over the world in the coming week. I pray that you would give them safe travel and you protect them and watch over them. I pray that you would give them patience as many of them go back home to where they're from. Uh, I even, I just really pray for protection for a lot of them. I pray that uh, our church is in many ways a safe haven for a lot of people um, who are even in this room. And even a lot of people in this room started really following Jesus here in this city through this church. And it would be really easy to return back to where uh, people are from and to return to old habits, being around old friends and things like that. And I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would protect them and sustain them and empower them uh, to radically follow Jesus. And even like, this is the way that a city changes the world is that a lot of people aren't from here. And as a consequence, we have weeks like this coming week where literally the Summit Church will be scattered over dozens and dozens of cities across the globe. And I pray that as our church scatters and goes in this coming week, uh, you would give us patience, you would give us kindness, you would give us love, you would give us charity, you would give us humility, not because we just muster those qualities by just being good people, but because you produce that in us by first treating us in those ways. And so I pray we would do that and we would demonstrate that and reflect that. And uh, we thank you for who you are and what you've done. And we ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.